Okay, tonight in our review of the reign of King Saul, I'm going to do something unusual, which is we're not really going to talk about Saul that much. Um, In this review, I was thinking, what would we do uh, to go through all of the stuff that we'd covered before and talk about again as far as the things that we've said about Saul, how he, you know, rejected the Lord over and over and over again, and I thought we did that a lot already, and who would we be more like in this scenario, right? If you're going to put yourself in this story as far as your... Uh, Probably not, right? No one in here. Anybody in here a king, royalty? Uh, No? Okay. So would you be the prince, right? Would you be Jonathan or one of the sons of King Saul? I I wouldn't, right? I wouldn't be the king. I wouldn't be the prince. Would you be maybe the the next king in line, the next chosen king? I mean, I, I probably wouldn't. I would probably be... Random citizen number 57, right? That would be me. That would be my role in this story. I would be the random citizen with no name who's in there and who's just kind of doing their thing every day, right? And we see a lot of those characters when you go through and you look at what we've already covered, right? There's a lot of ancillary characters. There's a lot of unnamed individuals. And we can learn a lot from these individuals, but it also kind of sets us up to see Saul is a consequence of a decision of the people, right? Saul in his reign is a consequence of their choices. And so everything we've talked about as far as Saul's character, as far as, far as the uh, lasting effect that he, you know, his decisions had in, in different ways throughout his life, that is a direct consequence of the choices of the people that we see at the very beginning, Right? You open up in chapter 8, and we open up with the children of Israel who haven't had a king up to this point. They've been led by judges. The Lord was supposed to be their king, and what do they do? Yeah, they reject the Lord in demanding for a new king, right? They go up to Samuel. They say, your sons aren't cutting it. We don't like that. We want a king like everybody else. And so, Saul and his reign are what they get, right? The Lord tells them through Samuel, beginning in verse 11, okay, right? You asked for the king, you rejected the Lord, and so this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons, place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and fifties. And some to do his plowing, to reap his harvest, to make his weapons of war, equipment for his chariots. He'll take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your seed of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He'll also take your male servants, your female servants, your best young men, your donkeys, and use them for his work. He'll take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his servants." Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Saul and his reign, direct consequence for this decision, right? Now, what does this say about the people at that time, right? What can we learn from this choice? Well, what we learn is the Lord is our king, 
right? We should not make a decision to put anybody else in that position because the Lord should be our king, right? If the Lord is your king, you will have good things. You won't have to go through these consequences, right? You will, but if the Lord has to be your king, if you reject him for something else or someone else, even if that's yourself, then consequences will follow, right? And this isn't just like a one-time decision that the people make. This is really reflective of a mindset that the people have had since we see at the end of the book of Judges, right? The end of the book of Judges, there's no king in the land, and what are the people doing? Whatever we want, right? I think this is right, so I'm going to do it. Well, no, you can't do that. That's not fair. Well, no, I think it's right, so it is fair. That's what I do, right? And so based on that mindset, you have a lot of consequences. You have a lot of problems occur if you're living that way, right? If you're living with that idea, uh, under that rule, for, you know, for lack of a better word. And so we need to not be like that, right? We need to choose the Lord and follow after him, not put somebody else in that position. Yes, Brother Bruce. May I call you 57 or just 50 you're yeah, by your sure. first name? Okay. That'd be great. <laughs> well, now, we need not forget these are the children of the same people who were willing to go back into bondage and reject God's goodness uh, just for some garlic and cucumbers and leeks. Uh, there are people who are, to us, maybe too picky, too set in their ways, all kinds of adjectives we could think of, but what do we reject God for? What does the world reject God for today? And we, and we see that. It, it hasn't changed. Uh, Satan hasn't changed just as God hasn't changed. These people would rather endure the loss of their children, uh, maybe the forced labor of kingship, the bringing about of war and all sorts of things that God had fought for them before, they'd rather uh, do it themselves. And it's not a Burger King world. You can't have it your way. They haven't learned that yet. It's true. And I think that part of the issue is that you're, you're talking about a nation, right? A nation. If you're talking about an individual, maybe you can reason with that person. You can reason with that individual. But when you have to reason with a nation... All at the same time, that becomes incredibly difficult for one individual, right? But this is kind of setting the stage of what's David going to have to do? Sorry, spoiler alert, Leland. What's David going to have to do, right? He's going to have to fight with these same people. He's going to fight these same ideas. Um, and it, it's going to be a struggle for him as well. Yes. I may be jumping ahead, so bear with me. <laughs> but when you first talked about Saul's kingship, or I can't remember exactly how you worded it, being a result of the people. I really didn't think about this passage. I thought about his leadership ability because he was heavily swayed by the people. Mm -hmm. So instead of leading the people to where they needed to go, he was influenced by what the people wanted because he wanted... I'll just leave it at that. And so... His rule and reign was spoiled because he didn't show leadership the way he
he should have. So the, the, I guess what I'm trying to say is it shows the importance of true leadership among the people. It's true. When you think about that idea, you know, at the end of Judges, that everybody's doing whatever's right in their own eyes, what that shows is that selfishness is the rule of law, right? Selfishness and pride, your own ideas, whatever's best for you is the rule of law, and that's, that's kind of how Saul ends up leading, right? And, and that's why he's influenced by the people, right? What's best for me? Well, if this giant group of people is going to be against me, I better be on their side. So yeah, sure, if they want to push me one way, push me another, I might go with it. Uh, depending on what's best for me, if that is your, you know, your standard. Um, but if you're going to be a righteous leader, you're going to have to fight against that, right? And so we'll see, you know, next quarter how David has to fight against some of these things uh, with this, uh, the mindset of the people. And so that's what we see kind of in starting out, right, the very beginning. <clears throat> we then have, you know, Saul is, is coming into his reign. You go, you skip a little bit ahead. We go to 1 Samuel chapter 11, and we see the first encounter for Saul, right? Saul's first th- action as kind of a king, as a leader, and we have this situation in Jabesh Gilead. We have the men of Jabesh Gilead are under the siege of Nahash. Nahash is coming and he's, you know, he's going to destroy them. And so they try it. They say, okay, we'll make a covenant with us. And he says, fine, I'll gouge out all your eyes, you know, one of your eyes each, and then I'll take you as my slaves, right? And that's how we'll work out the deal. And Saul comes in and he gives them deliverance, right? In verses, um, verse 13 of chapter 11, Saul said, not a man shall be put to death. Uh, today, for the uh, today, the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. He saves that town, and also spares the life of those detractors that were saying he should not be king. We shouldn't follow him, right? And he he gives the Lord the glory at that time. But I want to talk about the men of Jabesh Gilead, right? The men of Jabesh Gilead they are in a difficult situation here. Nahash is oppressing them, and we see. Uh, in another uh, section that Nahash is actually the reason why they ask for a king. They want deliverance from this individual Nahash, and they get it with Saul. And the men of Jabesh-Gilead are saved in this situation, right? And then we have the rest of Saul's reign, right? We have this situation here, and then Saul reigns for 42 years. 42 years. And then he dies, And we didn't get to cover it last week, but when Saul is killed in the battle and he's on the field and he's dead, the Philistines find his body, they cut off his head, they send it and put it up in the temple to their god Dagon, they send around his weapons and armor as a trophy to celebrate the victory over Saul, and they take his body and they take his son's bodies and they throw them up, they hang them on a wall of a city Beth. Uh, Beth Shan, right? And if you flip over to, you know, to what we studied last week, so 1 Samuel chapter 31, the men of Jabesh Gilead come back. Again, remember, 42 years is, is when they were saved, 42 years ago, right? Saul is now killed. His body's hung on a wall. And it says in... Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 31, uh, verse 
Verse 10, they put his weapons in the temple of Ashtaroth. They fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. In verse 11, now when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose, walked all night, and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth Shan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. What are these individuals doing here? They're paying respect to the king, right? The anointed one of the Lord. Why would David not kill Saul? He's the anointed one of the Lord, right? Why are these men doing this for Saul? Well, partly because Saul saved them from having their eye gouged out, right? Saul saved them from Nahash and his oppression. And regardless of what he had done over those 42 years, which Saul had done some pretty horrible things, right? Had an entire city of priests, including the high priest, killed on a whim because he, you know, just wanted it done. Um, But they remember the good that he had done to them, and they show him the honor that is due and anointed of the Lord, right? He was still a king of Israel. And he, as a king of Israel, as someone chosen by the Lord to serve in that position... They felt he did not deserve to be hung up on a wall displayed as a trophy for the Philistines, right? And so once they hear of it, they don't wait and have a plan or like vote on it and get the town together and say, hey, do you guys think we should do something about it? No, they hear of it, and what do they do? They go. They immediately go. Do they want to take vengeance for Saul? No, doesn't seem to be the plan, right? No, they go, they walk all night, and they take the body off the wall and they leave, right? They don't burn the town to the ground. They, they're going to recover the body of a, a king of Israel and give it a proper, respectful burial, right? And they do that. Now, that's commendable for the men of Jabesh Gilead, right? You're talking about, again, 42 years since Saul had saved them. But that had an impact on them, right? What things do we do in our lives that have impact on people? Well, I mean, we, we can't name them all because we don't necessarily know, right? We don't know. Sometimes it's very small things. Sometimes it's just going up to somebody and saying, hey, how are you doing today? And maybe they've not been doing so well. Maybe they felt forgotten. Maybe they felt left out. And you include them in some small sense, right? In the New Testament, we're told that small acts can have big consequences, right? Just a cup of cold water may be all that you have to do to have a huge impact on an individual, right? To have a huge impact on somebody. This was something that the men of Jabesh Gilead could do, and they did it, right? They didn't ask, you know, you know maybe we could do more. No, they, they did the thing that they could do. Right? Could they go and get Saul's head back from the temple in Dagon? No, they didn't do that. Right, But no, they recovered his body from the wall. That they could do. And they gave him the proper burial for the king. Any comments on the men of Jabesh Gilead? Okay, so. 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. Saul is then anointed king. 
by Samuel, and Samuel has some words for the people. Again, you know, he's reiterating the fact that they chose Saul over the Lord, right? They have rejected the Lord. And Samuel gives them this speech, letting them know that even though that has happened, they are not beyond redemption, right? You, you failed, children of Israel. You failed. You made the wrong decision. But that's not all, right? You, you don't have to continue to fail. You can make better decisions going forward, right? And so he begins here, uh, verse 13, Now therefore here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for, and behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Verse 14, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Even now, take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. And then there's this miracle that's given, right? To to, uh, prove the point that you need, you have to, you are required to fear and follow the Lord if you want these good things to occur, right? If you want to stay in good standing before the Lord, you have to fear him and you have to serve him. That's true, right? That is, that is true. And the people hear it and they say, oh, no, we've made a mistake. We, we got to go back. We got to change it. And Samuel says, it's too late. Can't do that. You just have to fear and serve the Lord from now on. And what we see is that some people do. Some people don't. Right? Sometimes... People make the right decision. Sometimes they make the wrong decision. It's really very reminiscent to, uh, I, you know, as Bruce has said, mankind from the beginning of time and continuing on, right? This is kind of what we struggle with on a regular basis each and every day. But it's something we have to struggle with each and every day, right? Because it's what we have to do to be pleasing to the Lord. We have to fear him And we have to serve him. And that's a decision you don't just make the one time. It's a decision you make over and over and over and over again. With every opportunity to make a decision that you have, you have to always weigh that in your decision-making process, right? And when you don't, when you stop, when you fail, that's when trouble starts, right? And so... Samuel is just setting up their options here. He's giving them, you know, the the truth plainly and saying, now you have to make that decision, right? Now going forward, you have to make that decision. And Saul is there as well, right? It says, uh, if you will fear the Lord and serve him, not fear Saul and serve him. It's fear the Lord. Saul is your new king, but you still have to fear the Lord. Saul's included in this, right? Saul's included in this. And that's going to be the same for each king going forward. Right, But the children of Israel have to get this message if they want to be faithful to the Lord and receive his blessings. And we see throughout the reign of Saul that sometimes the people are faithful, sometimes they are not. Right? And, uh, you know, again, that's very reminiscent of us. Right? We, we see that in ourselves. Sometimes we're faithful, sometimes we're not. Yes, Brother Jason. Just think, going back to some of Carrie's comments, you think about this passage, fear the Lord and keep his commandments. And you think about Saul, did he fear the Lord? 
or at least did he fear the Lord as much as he should? He feared the Philistines. We're going to see that in the next chapter. He feared the people turning against him. He feared David. He was afraid of all of these things, and it led him down the wrong path. Uh, and I think we can fall into some of the same traps. You know, obviously we're not a, a nation like the children of Israel or a king, but are we afraid of losing our things? Are we afraid of other nations outside of our country? Are we afraid of physical things? And do we let that overrule our fear of the Lord and our trust in him? And so I think it's easy, it's easy for us to look at Saul and go, well, that's a boneheaded decision. Um, in reality, we make the same boneheaded decisions, you know, maybe not as big of a mistake as Saul had did in some cases, but still, we can fall into the same trap of worrying about physical things and trusting in physical things, trusting in a king, the nation of Israel looking to that king rather than their spiritual king that's been taking care of them. So I think it's easy for us to fall into that same trap, and it's a good lesson for us to learn. It's true. You have, you know, in your life, there'll be a lot of things that you're afraid of. The, the key is don't let the things that you're afraid of override your fear of the Lord, right? That has to be the overriding thing. You can't let your fear of getting an illness or your fear of talking to people about uncomfortable things get in the way of your service to the Lord and your fear of the Lord has to override that and motivate you to make the right decisions is correct. Yeah. Um, we see, again, as Jason alluded, in the next chapter, chapter 13, Saul, he gives up waiting on Samuel and he offers that sacrifice, right? But the thing I want to focus in on is Saul does that because the people start leaving. Saul isn't the only one who's impatient here, right? Who started leaving first? The people, right? There's a group of people that gather together. They're going to be, you know, okay, the army's here. We get the army together and we're going to, Samuel's going to come. He's going to make the offering and then we're going to go into battle and we're going to have a great victory. Okay, so we're waiting here. Samuel told us to wait. We're doing it. Day comes. Samuel's not here. We're waiting. People start leaving, right? What does that mean? What does that say about those individuals? Didn't trust the Lord. They also were just as impatient, if not more so, than Saul, right? Because Saul at least waited longer than they did, right, before giving up on Samuel. But the people aren't, you know, they're not absolved of this, right? They're not innocent in this, those individuals that left early. Um, because where, where were they putting their trust? Well, it wasn't in the Lord, right? They weren't, weren't waiting, weren't being patient and waiting on the Lord, waiting on Samuel to come, fulfill the command, and then give them the victory, right? Well, they're not here. Okay, well, I'm just going to see you. I'm going to go back and farm more, maybe, right? Um, and so, you know, sometimes we, we were really hard on Saul here, as we should be. He didn't follow the command, but we can't let the people slide either, right? Because sometimes we're those people, right? Sometimes we have somebody who's leading us and we say, oh, this is great. We're all going to do this together. That's great. And things don't turn out exactly how we plan. And we say, well, I'm, not, I'm just going to leave. I'm just going to abandon this, this goal, right? Abandon what's happening here because I have better things to do, right? I can't, I can't wait for that. I can't be patient. And so I'll just, you know, I'll just go and do my own thing instead. We can't be that way, right? We also have to, to wait on the Lord, right? Even if, uh, you know, we're in that situation where waiting is difficult. Um, 
verse or chapter 14 verse 7 and following we have Jonathan right Jonathan and his armor bearer they give a great victory and who am I going to mention here obviously it's the armor bearer right because we don't know his name but Jonathan and his armor bearer go up and fight against a garrison if it was me I might be a little worried about going up with the prince and fighting against an army but the armor bearer says Sure, let's do it, right? I'm with you. Let's go. And so they go. That's a great example of faith. Here in this armor bearer, who we don't know the name of, and who's only mentioned right here. But he does, he does what he should, right? He has faith, just like Jonathan, to, to follow through and, you know, accept victory from the Lord if it will be given to them, right? And so... We need to, to see those examples as well, those small examples, like Jonathan's armor bearer here. Following on from that, we have Saul's foolish order, right? Nobody eat until we get our vengeance. And so the people starve themselves, and they, they get really hungry. They, they, you know, we get to the victory, and or actually we get to uh, you know, their, their fight against uh, you know, the Philistines, and it, it doesn't go well. And Saul, Saul says, well, somebody's, somebody's not kept the, the vow, right? Somebody's not kept this oath that I've made everybody go under. And it's his own son, Jonathan. And what do the people do? They protect him. They save him. Why? Saul was going to kill him. But what's the reason for their protection? Not just because Saul's going to kill him. I mean, that's the reason why they need to protect him. But what's their, their reasoning for why he should be protected? He was the deliverer, right? He's the one who had the great victory over the garrison. He had that victory from the Lord. It couldn't have come from anything else, right? Jonathan might be a great warrior, but there's two of them. And they go into a camp of the enemy. They shouldn't have made it out, but they did. They had a great victory. And so the people protect Jonathan from his father's wrath, his father's vengeance, right? His father's pride in making them you know, follow out that, that foolish vow, that foolish oath. And that's unique. We haven't seen the people of Israel protect a random person because they did the work of the Lord from a king, right? In Judges, it was, well, we might just kill you just because, right? It's, you know, it's whatever we want to do at this point, right? Um, Nobody's really protecting anybody in the book of Judges that we see so much, right? Um, but here, the people protect Jonathan, and they do it for the right reasons. And I think that's significant, right? We need to see that example, those examples as well. Um, because they're few, right? It's few times where we see the children of Israel make these decisions uh, that are, again, the right ones, right? The right ones following after the Lord. And, and in this case, they stood up to their king and made him, you know, do the thing that he should have done in the first place, right? He should have protected his son. He should not have made them go into that foolish vow. <clears throat> in uh, any comments on, on that, on the people protecting Jonathan... Yeah. I mean, it's a scary point that Saul did not show leadership. Jonathan, that's what the armor bearer told him. Yeah. 
It's true. Saul was a very uh, behind-the-scenes kind of ruler when it came to the battle, it seems, right? He didn't, he didn't take the initiative. Like, you see, you know, David and Jonathan taking the initiative, just going in and saying, anybody who wants to follow me, here we go, right? Um, you know, as we see from uh, Goliath, right, the, the Philistines and Goliath, he, he lines up the army, and then they just kind of sit there for a while uh, trying to figure out what's going to go on. Uh, so it's true. Yeah, Jonathan showed the leadership, and that, you know, that, that was new to the people, and I think, yeah, you're right. It probably had some influence on them in making this decision of, of, you know, this was a good thing, and we need to save this guy because this is good for us to have an, a prince like this uh, leading us. Yes, Brother Bruce. is that regardless of what kind of leader you are, whether you're strong or weak, leaders are men. They do dumb things sometimes. Uh, as great a leader as I was in the Army, I made one or two bad decisions, <laughs> being silly. But uh, <clears throat> God, as their defender... God as their leader, as their conqueror, as giving them land that seemed impossible to take was given to them. And now, rather than trust God, they're trusting in this king, uh, who this king in particular, and certainly later on the kings of Israel and leaders of today, make very bad decisions. God doesn't. But they're, I think, waking up to be careful what you ask for, you might get it. Mm -hmm. And certainly in this case, and as Saul goes on, he proves himself uh, to be exactly what the nations round about them were experiencing with their kings that they fell in love with, the idea of having a king like everyone else. But everyone else didn't have a king like God. And they, they just can't see the difference. Mm -hmm. And the world today, even people who call themselves Christians, uh, cannot see the eternal wisdom of God and the eternal mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. Uh, they change it to suit their needs. And the call to uh, all of the social things that churches are involved in today to bring people to church, that's not going to bring their souls to them. Having a king was not going to uh, save the nation of Israel as they thought it would be. Uh, so we need to be careful and listen to what happens here. Uh, when we put more of our trust in, in man and in emotion and in personal feeling, even in the church, uh, that we remember who we are and remember why we're here. Good thoughts. Thank you. Yes, John. that cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength 
and whose heart turns away from the Lord. And this is what they've done. And they received the curse. It's a curse of uh, living in fear, which was continuous throughout everything we're reading here. It was a, con- a curse of slavery. By putting their trust in Saul, they put a trust in someone who is powerless to save them from their enemy. And Bruce pointed out sort of the spiritual applications of that that I think are very plain. Um, on the other hand, Jeremiah also says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. And we see Jonathan and his armor bearer on this occasion trusting in the Lord. And it's, it's a blessing and it's a deliverance. When Goliath comes along, David puts his trust in the Lord. Goliath says, Hey, servants of Saul, why don't you come out and fight me? Well, they were servants of Saul. They chose to be servants of Saul and not servants of the living God. And they were, they were uh, cursed to living in fear. Um, one last passage. What, G, what David and Jonathan accomplished in uh, fighting for the children of Israel and delivering them is what maybe points toward Jesus in delivering people, Hebrews 2 says, who through fear of death are subject to slavery all their lives. So very much the same thing there. Yeah, it's true. And you also have here, though, the idea that even though individually, you know, you, you see the children of Israel at certain times being that the, the slaves, being the fearful people, at this time, when they save Jonathan, you see the children of Israel actually stand up to turn their leader to follow the Lord, which is unique, right? That's unique. Typically, what you see in these situations is that the leader turns the people into following after idols, their own whims, whatever the case might be, right? But in this instance, you have the people taking Saul and, and pushing him to, to follow you know, the right thing, right? To do the right thing. It's, it's reminiscent of what Abigail is, does for David, right? Abigail intercedes for David and says, do not do this evil, right? Allow the Lord to have his vengeance against Nabal, but do not do this yourself. I want to prevent you from making a mistake. And the children of Israel need to do that more often, right? That's kind of part of the problem. They, they see the leader, the king, make these decisions, make these decrees, and they don't stand up against it. They just go along. I mean, he's the king, he's the authority, okay, I guess. But no, Samuel told him in the beginning, you need to follow the Lord. And that's not conditional on if your king follows the Lord, then you also need to follow. No, it's you need to follow the Lord, everybody, including your king. And if your king is not doing it, that doesn't absolve you of that responsibility. That it kind of increases your responsibility to follow after the Lord because you have to influence the nation. You have to to lead the nation in the right way, and you can only do that if as many of you are following after the Lord as possible, right? What we see typically in the history of the Bible and the scriptures in the Old Testament is that the ruler of the children of Israel has to fight and struggle and pull them with all their might to follow after the Lord, right? We see that in Moses. We see that in Joshua, right? David, you know, again and again and again, this is the struggle that they, the leader has, But it's a lot easier if the people are involved, right? If the people are involved and they're following after the Lord, you have some pretty good times, right? Pretty easy times. And it goes well. But we can't fall into the trap of, well, 
today, nowadays, okay, we have elders, we have a preacher, we're, you know, our preacher's the best preacher, right? Our preacher's the best preacher, and we, we do whatever he says. And he said this thing, and it, I didn't think it was quite right, but, you know, I trust him. We got to follow them, right? We got to follow that individual. No, that's, that's the wrong thing, right? We have to follow the Lord. Even if all of us together have to go against that one individual that we respected, who is in error, right? Even if you have to do that, that's what you're required to do because we have to fear and follow after the Lord. Okay. Moving on to chapter 21. Chapter 21 and 22, we see an individual by the name of Doeg. Doeg the Edomite. And Doeg the Edomite is not somebody you want to be like, right? In Psalm 52, Psalm 52 is a psalm of David written uh, in the, the title before the psalm says, When Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. And I want to read the first verses of this psalm. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, O worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Doeg the Edomite did not have a good character, right? But... In the reign of Saul, when your ruler is selfish and wants things to happen, Doeg the Edomite becomes an opportunist, right? Here's a chance for me to get position, maybe, to me to get uh, favor from the king, for me to get riches and wealth from this decision. I will do the morally incorrect thing and kill the high priests, the priests of Nob, and the whole city. I'll do that because it's good for me, right? And in Saul's reign, a very selfish reign, yeah, he probably did get some benefits from that, some temporary benefit from that, right? He's not the only one, though. You have others. You have the men of Keilah in 1 Samuel 23, David comes and saves that city from destruction. And then Saul hears that, there, that he's in the area and David asks the Lord, what will the men of Keilah do? And the Lord says, yeah, they'll turn you over. Right? Where's the, the gratitude for the deliverance that was given by David? It's not there, right? What about the Ziphites in 1 Samuel 23 and then also again in 1 Samuel 26? They go to Saul and say, hey, uh, do you know that David's staying here in our land? Like, we can tell you what cave he's in. Just come on over, right? David writes again in the Psalms about the Ziphites. Psalm 54 is a, a psalm. Uh, when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, is not David hiding himself among us? Uh, it says in verse 3, for strangers have risen against me and violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. Right? What are the Ziphites and the 
the men of Keilah and Doeg the Edomite doing? Well, they're doing for themselves what they can, right? Let's get in good with the king. Let's get some kind of benefit. And what if that is an immoral action, Doeg? What if that is killing the priests of the Lord because Saul's own men refuse to do that, right? Saul commands his men to do that, to kill the priests. And they say, no, we're not going to do that, right? These are priests of the Lord. We're not going to kill them. And Doeg says, sure, I'll do it, right? Because he wants that position. Again, this is an attitude that I think you see beginning in Judges and continuing on throughout the people. And it will continue into the reign of David because it's not just something that you get rid of overnight, right? It's not just something that, oh, well, we flipped the switch and all of a sudden everyone's making moral decisions again. No, it's, it's pervasive, right? And, it, and that's why... Uh, you know, a little leaven leavens the whole loaf, right? That idea of that selfishness and that self-serving attitude of what can I get out of this, regardless of the morality of the decision, you know, how can I get the most benefit for me uh, is pervasive and goes throughout the entire uh, nation. First um, Samuel 24 gets us to, to Nabal and Abigail. And we talked about the faith of Abigail, how she interceded for David and kept him from committing, uh, you know, uh, taking his own vengeance instead of allowing that for the Lord. But also you see the faith of Nabal's servant just in going and telling Abigail about this in the first place, right? That servant had warning. That servant could have done a lot of things. He could have just ran, right? He could have fled because he knew David and his men were coming. But instead he went to Abigail and he told his his mistress what was going to occur, and he sought for some kind of plan to deliver them from this, you know, this destruction that was coming. And so there's a lot of faith in that individual, right? He's not named. That individual's not named. We don't know anything else about them, but we know that they had the presence of mind and the forethought to go and seek deliverance for all of the individuals that would be infected here, and not just their own self-preservation, right? And we can learn from that. Um, I want to end with uh, 1 Samuel 14. Right, 1 Samuel 14. Uh, the end of this chapter talks about the reign of Saul, verses 47 through 52. When Saul had taken the, uh, the kingdom over, uh, taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, sons of Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines, wherever he turned. He inflicted punishment. He acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Saul did some good things, right? Saul wasn't just a king known and understood by his bad decisions on a regular basis because we only get a few of the things that happen in his 42-year reign, right? We don't see every single day under the kingdom of Saul. And for a regular individual, you know, random citizen number 57, what would they have known? What would their day-to-day have been like under the reign of Saul? Well, they would have seen Saul delivering them from their enemies. They would have also seen Saul destroy a city of the priests. I mean, they would have seen a lot of confusing and maybe possibly conflicting things. Um, 
But would they have thought of Saul as a good king or a bad king? I don't know. And really, it doesn't matter, right? Because the question is not, was Saul good or was Saul's reign bad? The question is, did Saul serve the Lord? And we know that answer from what we see, right? We know that Saul did not follow the Lord. Saul rejected the Lord. And so the question for the next king that we will have is, will David serve the Lord? Right? And will the people serve the Lord under his reign? And that's what we'll see in the, in the next quarter. All right, thank you very much.